Hello, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jane. Jane, today's our anniversary. No! Are our anniversary me? is 420? No, ask me, ask me anniversary of what? Anniversary of what? We've been living in my mom's house for a month. <laughs> it's our one month anniversary oh. of living in my mother's house. <laughs> is it no. thrilling? That, that's, that's something. That's special. <laughs> <laughs> done so many puzzles. We've done seven. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's more than one, that's more than one a week. Oh, it is. Makes me feel good. The last one was so, it like broke me. See, though I was broken, we did one that was all buttons and, like, dice and marbles coming out of a jar, and I decided that I was going to do jars, and I <laughs> It's so like a glass it. jar. I so regretted it, because it was, like, it was a photorealistic picture, so having to do the reflection of the light on the jars, oh my, I was going insane. She that was. That one broke me. And then this last one we did was Cinque Terre, so it was a lot of sky and a lot of water, and then I decided to do buildings, which was a good choice for Sarah. But Jane did Sky, and this puzzle played us. I put all the pieces, like, I thought I was close to finishing the Sky, and then I finished it, and then I was four pieces away, and I had four pieces left, but the pieces I had didn't fit in the holes I had. So that meant that somewhere I had made a mistake, and these pieces, like, they fit together fit in ways that they didn't go. So I had, to, I had to stop and restart, and my method the second time of doing this guy was, if it fits, like, I would put all of this guy pieces in a big pile, and then I would go through, it took me forever, I would go through one by one, and I would see if a piece fit, and if it fit, I wouldn't be like, great, found it, I would set it in the, this fits pile, mm-hmm. and then I would make a doesn't fit pile, and then I'd put all the doesn't fits back in the box, and then I would, like, examine very closely which piece fit best and it always came down to like subtle color variations that like normally you like yeah you could only tell if you squinted or had like a flashlight to it yeah it was so frustrating yeah it was crazy it was it was like watching a scientist perform an experiment <laughs> it was nuts it was so hard but i'm glad you learned that lesson with the sky which was like three pieces deep as opposed to learning at the ocean that's like the second half of the board you know yeah so at least then when you got to ocean you were like i will not be fooled yeah no i was a professional at that point (laughs) but it was nuts it was like it was so tricky and there were so many that you're like yeah that could go there and then later you would be like i actually don't think that does go there yeah because it would fit perfectly. It's nuts. We even, at the end, got down to it where we had, like, we were missing, what, two pieces? Yeah. But we had the two pieces that were missing in holes, and then we had a piece. And it didn't go anywhere. And it didn't go anywhere. But we knew it was part of it. But so unlike fu- the sky piece yeah. that we found in the box that I was like, I don't think this is part of this puzzle. And yeah. And we agreed that it wasn't. But this piece, it didn't fit in the hole we had left. Even though it looked like it kind of would, we could force it in, but it would just, like, look odd. Yeah. But I found the, the correct yeah, one. Yeah, figured been, it out. Sarah figured it out. It had been incognito somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But, oh my god, it was nuts. What a puzzle. That puzzle was, was a challenge. And I normally love puzzles, but that, I nearly had, like, several panic attacks. Like, there were times when I was literally, like, normally you have to tear me apart from puzzles. Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to go anywhere until it's done. Like, mm-hmm. I just want to finish it. This one, I was like, I gotta walk away a couple times. Yeah. Like, I, I, <laughs> I'm getting upset. <laughs> I need to take a break for me. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Our next puzzle will hopefully be less stressful. Yeah, we'll do a fun one. Anyway, we can get started. I'm just sure. rambling about my problems. <laughs> Why not, you know? <laughs> you start. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I thought you were maybe going to say something else. I don't know. No, this is... Welcome to our podcast, sure. Jane. You yeah. start. <laughs> okay. You asked me about stained glass. Oh, I forgot what I asked you about. Yeah, I also forgot what I asked you about, and I don't want to know until we get there. Right, 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 right. It's uh, related. It's a, f- a fun, you know... Fun game. Surprise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you asked me about stained glass. And I was actually really interested in researching this because I'm so fascinated by, like, architectural history and, like, medieval Mm -hmm. history Mm -hmm. and things like that. So I thought this was kind of a fun thing to read about. It's got a very long history and I tried to, like, you know... Condense. Condense it Mm -hmm. and get, like, the most important events and, like... Progressions. Yeah, progressions and events Mm -hmm. um, in there that were needed. But there were also... Did you say events? 
You said most important events and events. (laughs) Is that what you said? I already forgot. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Events, if you know more about Themes, you know. Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get exactly what you mean. Yeah. Most important information in here that I could. There were a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of European artists involved in this. You don't have to I didn't list them all. That's fine. That's fine. We appreciate you. But, you know, there's a lot of information out there that feel free to this is the first time in, and you know what I've been wondering that I've been like I don't know Google it <laughs> if you no, really want you there's many I no, know I'm sure it's it's a lot it's, yeah it's okay. intense well okay stained glass has been produced since ancient times cool uh, the Egyptians and the Romans excelled at the manufacture of small colored glass objects the British Museum has two artifacts from ancient Rome that um, our listeners can't see but I'm gonna show you because I think they're really cool. Uh, the first one is called the Lysurgis Cup, and it's made from a murky mustard colored glass, but when it's exposed to light, it glows purple red. Oh. And this shook me because I looked at the picture of it before I read the description, and the fact that it's made from mustard colored glass, like, shook me because, like, literally look how purple that is. Oh, <gasps> that's so purple. I was like, that's so pretty. I'm obsessed with it. I love it. That is really pretty. I want to drink wine out of it, but it's ancient. Artifact, right. so I probably shouldn't do that. Of but it's course. beautiful, and I want it. The second one is the Portland vase, which I was surprised it's made from glass. It looks like it'd be like a piece of pottery or something, but it looks like this. It's a very dark glass. Oh, that like does look very... like it would be pottery. It's pretty. It is very pretty. Phoenicia was also a big manufacturer of glass in ancient times. It doesn't. It didn't specifically say whether or not it was colored glass or not, mm-hmm. but. I do think of glass as more of a modern invention. Like, I don't... I think I picture in my head, like, oh, yeah, ancient people, like, living in huts and not having windows. <laughs> like, they had windows, but... But glass just seems like such a modern thing to me. So to hear that all these ancient civilizations had it and were making beautiful art from it Mm -hmm. seems crazy to me. Yeah. In early Christian churches of the 4th or 5th century, there were windows that were made of really ornate patterns, but not of glass, of very thinly sliced alabaster, which is like rock. Oh, yeah. When you look at it, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a specific kind of stained glass. But it was it predated stained glass windows. Right. And, but same idea. But it was the same idea, yeah. Designs were carved into it, like imagery of the Bible, potentially. Mm-hmm. Some still exist. You can see them. They're really cool looking. But they were made from rock, like I said, instead of stained glass. The earliest known reference to a stained glass window being made for a church was in the year 675 AD when Benedict Biscop imported workmen from France to glaze the windows of the monastery of St. Peter, which he was building at Monk Wearmouth, which is in northeast England. Cool. And there were hundreds of pieces of colored glass and lead that were dated back to the 7th century that have been found in that area since then. Cool. In the Middle East, the glass industry of Syria continued throughout the Islamic period, and Mm -hmm. they had major centers of manufacture of glass at Raqqa, Aleppo, and Damascus. Aleppo's where the soap comes from, too. Oh. Yeah. Their biggest product, though, was a highly transparent colorless glass. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they had the capability to make colored glass, but I think what they were known for was this colorless glass and gilded glass. Oh. Which sounds very pretty. That does sound pretty. Southwest Asia has been making stained glass since ancient times as well. There is a formulation for the production of colored glass that comes from the 7th century BC from the Assyrian city of Nineveh. Oh. Which anytime, I'm sure Nineveh has a a history of its own, but anytime I think of it, I think of the Veggie Tales, Jonah and the Whale. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. But, like, it's a real city that I'm sure, like, people live and is... Yeah. I don't want to make fun it. doesn't, it gets a bad rep in VeggieTales. It does. Interesting. I need to rewatch VeggieTales, Jonah and the Whale. What a great movie. (laughs) A work of art. Uh, Truly. In the text, the Kitab al-Dura al-Maknuna, which is attributed to the 8th century alchemist Jabir ibn Hayyan, there is discussion of colored glass being produced in ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt. Oh. So to think of somebody... In the 8th century, thinking of something as ancient. 
you know it has gone back a while, you know? The same text also mentions using colored glass to create artificial gemstones made from high-quality stained glass. Oh. So not just used for windows, but... Yeah. I wonder if people, like, thought it was, like, a fancy gem. I'm sure it's still, like, an expensive thing to make. They probably used it as, like, fake gems, like how we put fake stones on jewelry. Like, it probably was a similar idea. Uh, I keep thinking of that song from Millie. Spend my future on a green glass, love. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Throughout the Islamic world, stained glass has been used to decorate mosques, palaces, and public spaces. Their style, though, is very different than the more European style. Their stained glass windows that you see are generally non-pictorial and are mostly, like, geometric designs. Mm-hmm. They use a lot of circular, like, kind of mandala-looking designs. Sometimes, though, they do contain flowers and text, but that's the most pictorial or like non-abstract they get during the middle ages in europe this is the big thing you asked me about that was when the church really began to use it okay it doesn't say that it was like used to teach illiterate people about the bible but they use it to teach stories of the bible and portraying it in a pictorial way yeah and i think that's like such a useful tool to like when you have few people were literate yeah yeah especially because like not even just christianity many religions are based on texts. Yeah. What but, do you, like... <laughs> right, but it was also, like, forbidden for many people to read those texts. Yeah. So you were uh, expected to uphold... How do you spread this religion? Right, but you were also expected to uphold those religious values if that was the the dominant religion where you live. So it's like you were both expected to uphold those values but forbidden yeah. from reading it. So it's very tricky. I saw a tweet recently that was, like, some pro-lifer saying... Ah, so churches are considered non-essential, but abortion clinics are essential. I get it. And then someone replied, like, yes, abortion clinics provide a medical service. Church is technically a book report. Yeah. And and someone replied, or no, not not a book report, um, a book club. Yeah. (laughs) Someone replied, a book club where no one's read the book. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And then I thought of that and I was like, yes, they didn't read the book because they had a stained glass window to look at. They taught them everything about it. Um, (laughs) The Romanesque and early Gothic period in Europe, Mm -hmm. which was from about 950 to 1240, the style of architecture for cathedrals was developing so that windows were getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Mostly because they wanted to let as much natural light in, the light from God in as possible. But because they were designing windows to be so big, they needed to cover them in a lot of glass. And in order for the glass to be like held up, they needed to have a lot of iron and, like, lead bars, like, going across yeah. it. So what they would do is they would make them, like, decorative. The windows would be circular. And it, like, led to the design of what we think of as, like, the rose window from Notre Dame and right. from Chartres Cathedral, which I had never heard of, but it was referenced a lot in my research. I looked at the rose window from it. It's very pretty. So, again, like, these ornate windows were being produced in a way that sort of came from an architectural need because they wanted them to be as big as possible. This was a way to make them still pretty, but still letting in as much light as possible and having as big a window as you could. During this time, but especially during the Renaissance, architecture was getting increasingly ornate and churches especially were like, oh, we want to make this as big and pretty as possible. If you can think of a pretty thing, put it in there. We think of the Renaissance as like, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but just... (laughs) You keep doing the same circular hand motion and I'm like, a word, any word. (laughs) (laughs) We think of the Renaissance as... I don't know, fancy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'll simplify this for you. The Renaissance... (laughs) In the Renaissance, they valued reflecting God in art because they saw art as like a higher calling just as God is a higher calling. Someone studied art history in Italy. Yeah, I did. (laughs) I'm trying trying to help you, Jane. I know, I know, I know, I know. Very early on in the Renaissance, there was a scheme of stained glass created for the Florence Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And it was very famous and historically important for the art of stained glass because many schemes in churches were modeled after this one. It was devised by Lorenzo Ghiberti. Oh, have you I, heard of him? Yeah, we know him. Oh, she's familiar. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's a big guy. Yeah. It contained three ocular windows for the dome and three for the facade, which were designed over the course of 40 years, 1405 to 1445. And the ones on the facade were designed by renowned artists. Let's see if you've heard of them. Ghiberti, who devised the whole thing. A little guy named Donatello. Mm-hmm. Never heard that name before, but... We love him. Um, Uccello. Mm-hmm. 
And the last one is Andrea Del Castaño. I've heard that name. I wouldn't yeah. be able to tell you any of his art, but I know he, mm-hmm. I know he's significant. Mm-hmm. Each major ocular window contains a single picture of the life of Christ or of the life of the Virgin Mary. And they're surrounded by wide floral borders. And there are two smaller facade windows by Ghiberti, which show martyred deacons, St. Stephen and St. Lawrence. One of the cupola windows sadly is no longer intact. And the window made by Donatello has lost nearly all of its painted details. Yeah, it's like nothing. <laughs> it's pretty underwhelming. It's really sad. You feel really bad about it. You've seen it? It's at, It's in the dwell. Well, I know you've been, well, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know, like, you, like, specifically were, like, looking at the window being like, oh, there's Donatello's window. Oof, I t- awkward, yeah, sad. My, I, I took my art history class in Florence. Yeah. Best time of my life. We didn't meet in a classroom. It was literally just yeah. every day they would be like, all right, meet me here. And yeah. then we would go in there yeah. and we'd study the Tuomo. Mm-hmm. We went in and he mm-hmm. was like, this is a window. We were like, ah. He was like, Donatello <laughs> did that. We were like, ah. <laughs> but you can't really tell. Yeah. Aw. <laughs> no, he was like, this is an underwhelming moment of Donatello's work. And then we saw some of his statues mm-hmm. and they were beautiful. Stained glass production continued to be popular throughout Europe, particularly in Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands where you can see most evolution of style, uh, particularly from Gothic to classical. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into later why it's easier in those countries to track the history of stained glass style. Yeah. When Protestantism was on the rise, stained glass windows were viewed as a symbol of wealth of the church. Like, oh, oh the church yeah. has so much money. Look at these fancy windows they're putting in. Like, why do you even need that? Yeah. It's just to show off your money. Right. Protestants didn't really like that. They did not. <laughs> nope. Martin Luther had a big problem with that. Yeah. During the French Revolution, many stained glass windows were neglected and destroyed. And then, big one, during the Reformation in England, large numbers of Renaissance windows were smashed and replaced with plain glass. Mm -hmm. During Henry VIII's disillusionment of the monasteries, and then Thomas Cromwell's injunctions against against objects of veneration... Thousands of stained glass windows were destroyed. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, which is mainly, like, that's why countries other than France and England, it's easier to track Yeah, the evolution of the style because there was a huge time when it was just, like, destruction right. in those countries. Which is really unfortunate. Yeah. In Suffolk at Hengrave Hall, there is a private chapel with stained glass windows, and these are considered particularly significant because they managed to survive that period of destruction mm-hmm. and they're considered the finest stained glass windows to have done so like there are some other ones but they're not that amazing i wonder when the stained glass windows at the church where shakespeare is buried were installed that one has has stained glass windows but some of them mm-hmm. depict scenes from shakespearean plays oh so it might be relatively new yeah but the church is old probably I mean, I believe, yes, it is old. <laughs> probably. It's probably old. <laughs> During the time of destruction, the methods of how to make traditional stained glass windows were lost. And it wasn't until the early 19th century that... Sick dome reference. <laughs> that they figured out how to do it again. My mom has this complaint about domes. She, like, doesn't believe oh, yeah. that they forgot how to do it. And I was like, no, like, that's why they're... That's why the Dark Ages were, like, such a problem. Because, and that's why there are so many churches yeah. built the way that they were. That's why the Duomo is such a big deal. Because they didn't know how to build a Duomo. A dome. Yeah. And she's like, but we have the the Pantheon. And I was like, <laughs> but we forgot. <laughs> we just lost. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That Like, what if it's, like, a boom apocalypse? We don't know how to make televisions. Like, that'd be nuts. That would suck. Fascinating. Yeah. This is just a problem really in England. Like, mm-hmm. it was a little bit of a problem in France because of the French Revolution. Right. But, like, uh, other countries, like, stained glass production, like, continued as normal. But England, who we had to stop and t- take, like, 300 years to figure out how to do that again. They couldn't or just, not, like, not go study. 200. They couldn't go study in a different country and then come back. I don't back. know. I think they were just really... I mean, they also there were, were there a lot of things lot going of on. Yeah. Yeah, they were at war with a lot of <laughs> And it wasn't a super high priority to... Mm-hmm. Figure out stained glass windows. <laughs> also, they were a Protestant-led country. It's not like anyone was rushing to do it. Yeah, exactly. That and also, they probably weren't super popular with every country. It's not like they'd be like, hey, can we come over and, like, learn from you guys? Mm, like, no, yeah, I would destroyed all your stuff for a reason. Like, yeah, England has been pretty unpopular in the past. Yeah. With the Europeans. Yeah. In France, there was more of a continuity of glass production, so that allowed them to have more of a stylistic development. Mm-hmm. 
in I, why would I, why am I doing this with my hands so much? Yeah, you're today? doing a lot of rolling motions. I don't know. Following an impulse, I guess. Flexing that wrist. (laughs) I'm showing it off. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to show you how flexible I am with my wrist. In the 19th century, while England was still, like, figuring out how to make stained glass windows, (laughs) France was making very fancy designs and... Shut off. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually popular to take like a very famous painting an oil painting from a famous artist and copy it onto a stained glass window oh that's cool that's what they were up to then there was in fact a boom of stained glass production in the early 19th century in france because many churches and cathedrals wanted to go back and restore all of the ones that had been destroyed during the french revolution right i I wonder if they were helping england in any way do that like and basically that was a restoration of sorts and there was also just an increased popularity of stained glass windows at the time. They were like, remember when we made those? Those were really great. Let's make a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> there was kind of a boom of development of stained glass in France. In fact, the Sevres porcelain factory in 1824 began to produce stained glass to meet the high demand. Mm-hmm. And there was a big revival of stained glass as an art form in Germany and Austria later on in the 19th century. In 1857, J&R Lamb Studios was established in New York City and it was the first major creator of stained glass in the U.S. And for many years, it was the producer of ecclesiastical stained glass for America. Cool. So, like, if a church wanted a stained glass window, that's where you go. Cool. American stained glass creator Jean Lafarge made several innovations to the practice. In 1880, he received a patent for his innovation of opalescent glass. Which, I don't even know how to describe it or how it's made, but it's very pretty. It looks like it's made from opal. I'm sure this, it, it's, it's like almost a bluey purple. Cool. Kind of translucent looking glass. It's really pretty. And he also developed the use of copper foil instead of lead to make like the, the bars that hold the glass together. Mm-hmm. This is used in not only windows, but lamps and other stained glass decor and objects. Good for him. Yeah. He's a very cool guy and was very influential to the art of stained glass making in the 20th century. Right. And my last bullet point here is that stained glass continues as an art form throughout the world, but a majority of makers are heavily influenced by the Renaissance styles, and it's really only made for churches. So I think you asked me specifically, like, why is it so connected to religion? I I think it's literally just that it's been so heavily associated with that from those periods of history and art. Right. And particularly when you had, like, the Reformation and the rise of Protestantism. It was such a thing that was so tied to wealth of churches. Yeah. I think it just became so tied to religion stylistically. Yeah. Then now it's hard to put it anywhere else and not have it be like, oh, it's like a church. Right. I'm wondering, though, if it started... You said that it was really first used in churches because they were making these big windows. Does it have to do with the fact that glass can get really heavy and they didn't have the technology to to lift large pieces of glass into something that shape? I do think it was easier for installation to have... Smaller pieces. Smaller pieces connected by, like, metal bars, which they had. Although some stained glass windows are more a case of, like, many holes in a wall. It's not necessarily just... Right. ...connected by bars. But you're also right, it's also easier to lift smaller pieces. Yeah. And just to have glass stay in place if it's not one big, heavy piece. Yeah. That's more likely to fall out or get damaged or break. Right, because a, a lot of architectural innovations have just been that they had to do it because of weight and size yeah. and stature and stuff like that. So also, think about if a single piece of, like, if someone throws a rock at a stained glass window and it only hits one little piece, it's much easier to replace a piece of it than it would be to replace the whole window. That's true. True. And of course it could do more What's damage the than movie that, that's but... the, the they talk about the glass breaking budget? Oh, um <laughs> my mom, you've never seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, have you? No. Okay, it's my family's favorite Christmas movie. And if you're listening and you've seen it, then you're gonna know what I'm talking about. That movie, so many windows get broken for comedic <laughs> bets. My mom is like, they must have a really cheap like window replacement service in this time because they break windows like it doesn't mean anything like it's so simple it's so funny and then in one of the final scenes everybody every window in the house gets broken so it's Mm. like you like watch like little by little like and there goes that window and there goes that window and there goes that one and then at the end it's like all the windows Mm. but i'm always like 
is glass cheap? Like, obviously it's just a movie, but it's yeah. one of those, like, economic impacts things that bother me. I would figure out how much money it would cost for the Griswolds to replace all their windows. I feel like it can't be, because that feels like something that was such a big no-no growing up. Mm-hmm. It's like, don't break the windows. Like, it's a um, thing yeah. in cartoons that's, like, Yeah, Dennis never had a broken breaking. window. Knock on wood, I think, in Same. this house. I mean, I moved around a lot, but I don't think any of my windows were ever broken. Or if it was broken, I definitely didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I never did it. Who knows? Who knows? Is that everything on stained glass? Yes, it is. <gasps> Thank you. That was so that was so interesting. Informative. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So, today is a holiday. <laughs> Please it's, it. Today is 420. This comes out on the 22nd, but it was 420 when we recorded this. We are not high. It's not legal here. Um... <laughs> So today for our middle segment, I just want to talk about some of the uh, pros of legalizing marijuana. Yeah. And to be fair, I'll throw in a couple cons, you know, to be fair. Okay. Okay. I understand. So here we go. This is from ProCon.org. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So pro number one, marijuana legalization boosts the economy. The marijuana industry could exceed $24 billion in revenue by 2025. For every $1 spent in the marijuana industry, that gives back $2.13 to $2.40 in economic activity. I get so mad at those, like, rich white guys that are now making a lot of money off of marijuana when they spent most of their careers demonizing it and, like, putting people in jail for it. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Um... (sighs) Tourism, banking, food, real estate, construction, and transportation are a few of the industries that benefit from legal marijuana. The legal marijuana industry generated $7.2 billion in economic activity in 2016 and added millions of dollars in federal taxes paid by cannabis businesses. Um, In Colorado, marijuana brings in three times more tax revenue than alcohol. The state raised $78 million in the first fiscal year after starting retail sales in 2012 and $129 million in the second fiscal year. Washington, who who also legalized it in 2012, collected a total of $220 million in tax revenues in its second fiscal year of sales. So definitely would boost the economy. Pro number two, legalizing marijuana results in decreased teen marijuana use similar study with alcohol mm-hmm. allowing it earlier shows actually decreased use safer use etc etc pro number three traffic deaths and arrests for duis will not increase and may decrease when marijuana is legalized traffic deaths dropped 11 percent on average in states that legalized medical marijuana Pro number four, legal marijuana is regulated for consumer safety um this is similar to the argument for um why sex workers should be legal like if it's yeah. legal then you can regulate it you know where if it's illegal then you can't regulate it and that's more dangerous many would argue um colorado washington which is i'm sure the same argument that gun owners try to make which makes me worried that i'm using the same rhetoric as them but i see what you're saying but that's the problem is that they're not regulated <laughs> so- no that's my point like i think if people who support gun ownership like they think if it's legal like they keep saying if you make it illegal like people are just gonna get them anyway and it's true but you dangerous can't... but i would argue yeah you no, can't I'm, kill I'm, someone with a blunt <laughs> i'm with you see i am anti yeah. <laughs> i'm not supporting the gun mm-hmm. debate or argument but you know what i mean um so Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska all pass regulations to prevent kids' exposure to marijuana, including child-resistant packaging. Um, California regula- regulations include limitations on the serving sizes, um, seed-to-sale seed testing and tracking, and 24-hour video surveillance at retail stores, all which offer protection for people who are purchasing. The legalization of marijuana is phasing out black markets and taking money away from drug cartels, organized crime, and street gangs. It will not make their presence it will not expand their presence. It will yeah. shrink their presence, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, the enforcement of marijuana prohibition is racist because people of color are disproportionately impacted. That's true. Crime goes down when marijuana is legalized. <laughs> um, and one person pointed out that, like, we waste a lot of our tax dollars on incarcerating people of color smoking marijuana as opposed to spending our tax dollars um, on catching more serious criminals. Yeah. Because police workforces are equally stretched to perform those tasks even though they are not it makes no sense yeah they're not of equal weight legalizing marijuana would end the costly enforcement of marijuana laws and free up free 
police resources, like I said, arresting people for marijuana possession cost the United States between $1.19 billion and $6 billion annually just on uh. marijuana. Um, these costs include police, judicial, legal, and corrections expenses. Incarcerating marijuana offenders cost the United States an estimated $600 million per year. Harvard economist Jeffrey Myron has estimated that marijuana legalization would save between $7.7 billion and $13.7 billion annually. Just really nuts. Let's just do that! Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> marijuana is less harmful than alcohol and tobacco, which are already legal. Alcohol and tobacco are legal and known to cause cancer, heart failure, liver damage, and more. According to the CDC, six people die from alcohol poisoning every day, and 88,000 people die annually due to excessive alcohol use in the United States. Mm -hmm. There are no recorded cases of death from marijuana overdose. So, there's that. Taxes collected from the legal sale of marijuana support important public programs such as drug treatment facilities, health center, mental health centers, housing programs, along with school programs. So, you know, more taxes, more pro more public programming. Mm -hmm. Legalizing marijuana creates thousands of needed jobs. There are an estimated 122,814 legal full-time marijuana jobs in the United States as of January 2017. A report from the New Frontier data found that the cannabis industry could create a quarter of a million new jobs by 2020. It's now 2020, and that was if we had legalized everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so that didn't happen. Um, the cannabis industry... In, the Re representative Earl Blumenauer, who is the Democratic representative in Oregon, said that the cannabis industry in the United States is expected to produce nearly 300,000 jobs by 2020 and grow to $24 billion by 2025. So, more jobs. Also good. A majority of Americans support legalizing marijuana. A, Gallup, a 2018 Gallup poll found a record high 66% support for legalizing marijuana, up from 12% in 1969. Oh, majority. And the final problem from ProCon.org <laughs> is that the government doesn't have the right to tell adults what they can put in their own bodies. David Bowes, executive vice president of the Cato Institute, said, quote, people have the right to live their lives in any way they choose so long as they don't violate the equal rights of others. What right could be more basic, more basic, more inherent in human nature than the right to choose what substances to put in one's own body? And then they, they go on to say more than 3,500 3, people die from drowning every year in the United States, but the government wouldn't arrest people for owning swimming pools. Over 30,000 people are killed annually in car accidents, but the government doesn't outlaw driving. Adults should be allowed to make adult decisions about how they choose to relax or have fun without government interference, especially when they're not hurting anybody. And then U.S. Senator Cory Booker said, There is no doubt in my mind that the federal government should not be in the marijuana prohibition business. From every perspective, a libertarian perspective, fiscal conservative perspective, Christian evangelical perspective, progressive perspective, marijuana prohibition is just wrong. Mm -hmm. This is, I'm just going to throw a bone to the people on the other side. <laughs> there's not many. Like, Double overall, that. it's yeah. very well supported in yeah. the United States. First con. Legalizing marijuana is opposed by major public health organizations. Um, these include the American Medical Association, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. There, the American Academy of Pediatrics said legalization campaigns that imply that marijuana is a benign substance present a significant challenge for educating the public about its known risk and adverse effects. The second con I want to point out is that growing marijuana harms the environment. Marijuana cultivation results in deforestation, soil erosion, erosion, habitat destruction, and river diversion. Cannabis plants require nearly double the amount of water needed to grow grapes or tomatoes. Mm. Um, and then Rosamond Naylor, senior fellow at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, said, quote, taking water directly from rivers and streams in the summer to grow marijuana not only reduces the water available for agriculture, but also threatens wildlife species. Regardless of the legal status of marijuana, the way we are currently managing its impacts on water and wildlife in California just doesn't work. So that's as less to do with legal status. But again, it's yeah. like if you legalize it, then you can start to pass environmental protections you know yeah, exactly. for it too and that's in california where it is now legal but at the time this was published it was not legal yeah so i'm interested to see if the california government has done anything about that since then so there's that so that's everything about 420 cool, cool, cool. some nice fun facts for you okay so you asked me to talk about chivalry 
Right. Yeah. Which is very related to I the, totally to forgot. Medieval, medieval times, you know? Keep going with the medieval stuff. I'm very pleased to announce that this episode will bring back an old favorite of ours. Um, and I want you to try to guess who it is. Guess who said it? No. I'm saying that this episode's going to bring back a familiar face to us. I want you to guess Jeffrey who Jeffrey of Monmouth. Yes! Oh, yeah! I didn't have to give you a hint. The one and the only Jeffrey of Monmouth. That guy. So chivalry, also known as the chivalric code, is an informal code of conduct developed between 1170 and 1220. It is commonly associated with the medieval Christian institution of knighthood. This idea has long been popularized in medieval literature, including in the legends of Charlemagne of France and King Arthur and his knights made famous by Geoffrey of Monmouth. If you recall, these works were taken as historically accurate until the 19th century, so we can assume that the practice of chivalry emerged from society's understanding of it in these and other works. Mm -hmm. The European Code of Chivalry came from the Carolonian Empire, which was in power in 800 to 888 AD in what is now France and Northern Italy. This empire idealized cavalrymen, particularly those in Charlemagne's cavalry. The word chivalry derives from the old French term chevalier, which means a man of aristocratic standing. This is a really long definition. A man of aristocratic standing and probably of noble ancestry, who is capable, if called upon, of equipping himself with a war horse and the arms of heavy cavalrymen, and who has been through certain rituals that make him what he is. That's what the word chevalier means. I've definitely heard that word. Yeah. Originally, the term only referred to soldiers on horses, but it later evolved to be associated with knights and social-slash-moral virtues. This was due to the Christian romantic genre that became popular in the 12th century, which propagated the idea of courtly love. Mm Mm-hmm. By the late Middle Ages, the Code of Chivalry combined warrior ethos, knightly piety, and courtly manners to establish a notion of honor and nobility. Three different writers across the 12th and 14th to 14th century summarize chivalry in these three texts. The first is an anonymous poem titled Orden de Chevalerie, which tells the story of a captured prince and crusader negotiating his release by showing the Sultan of Egypt the ritual of Christian knighthood. This was based in some sort of truth. The Sultan that is mentioned was a real ruler, um, and the person who's written about was a real person, so this does have elements of truth to this poem. The second is the Libro del Ordre Cavaliera. This is in Spanish, and that's, like, one I really don't know. Oh. Um, by Ramon Lul, who writes about Spanish knighthood. And finally, the Livre de Chevalerie by Geoffroy de Chandy, which examines the <laughs> qualities of knighthood. French, oh. French rolls off my tongue. Spanish, I'm like... Oh, I'm the, I'm the opposite. Spanish, I can, like, I'm pretty good at... at I don't know the I don't know the I don't know the way the the vowels are supposed to sound. I feel like so much of learning a foreign language is like how does this vowel sound or like when a word has this ending, what does that sound like? And I've never taken Spanish. I just know that two L's is a E sound. It's like a Y. Yeah, it's like a Y. Um, which Ramon Yule was from Mallorca, so I know how to say that. (laughs) (laughs) All three of these writings speak of chivalry as a way of life that combines the military, nobility, and religion. Mm -hmm. These values became popular at the end of the Crusades in the early 16th century as society idealized historical knights fighting for the quote-unquote holy land. Mm -hmm. In 1891, Leon Gautier summarized the idea with the Ten Commandments of Chivalry. At this point, chivalry was dead, as we might say, Um, but these are still important points that kind of categorize what chivalry was. And those Ten Commandments are, Thou shalt believe all that the Christian Church teaches, and thou shalt observe all its directions. Thou shalt defend the church. Thou shalt respect all weaknesses and shalt con- constitute thyself the defender of them. Thou shalt love the country in which thou wast born. Thou shalt not recoil before thine enemy. Thou shalt make war against the infidel without cessation and without mercy. Thou shalt perform scrupulously thy feudal duties if they, not, if they be not contrary to the laws of God. Thou shalt never lie and shalt remain faithful to thy pledged word. Thou shalt be generous and give largesse to everyone. Thou shalt be everywhere and always the compa- the champion of the right and the good against injustice and evil. 
something, however, that I think is really interesting and important to note is that at no present moment did society ever consider itself to be living in a chivalrous world. Chivalry has never really been a living institution. Ah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. It exists in many forms of literature. Don Quixote is a mad search is is on a mad search to live chivalrously, and he is considered a very chivalrous character. But that was almost a satire Mm -hmm. on what chivalry was supposed to be. And for centuries, the goal of many societies has been to quote unquote restore chivalry. However, no matter how far back in history you go, this is a shared idea: the idea that you must restore it. And in medieval times, they were looking to ancient Rome as a way to wow. They were so chivalrous. Let's try to restore that. And then in the late Middle Ages, they were saying, the early Middle Ages, they were so chivalrous. Let's try to preserve that. Historian Jean-Charles Léonard de Sismondi wrote, We must not confound chivalry with the feudal system. The feudal system may be called the real life of the period of which we are treating, possessing its advantages and inconveniences, its virtues and its vices. Chivalry, on the contrary, is the ideal world, such as it existed in the imaginations of the romance writers. The more closely we look into history, the more clearly shall we perceive that the system of chivalry is an invention almost entirely poetical. Isn't that so weird? That's nuts. Isn't that, like, really odd? <sighs> Next and, time someone's like, oh, chivalry's dead, I'll be like, actually, it, we, like, it never was. Like, It's so interesting. In reality, even with a codified guide to chivalry, real knights and noblemen played ambivalent, problematic roles in society and hardly conducted themselves in a way that would be viewed as helpful or romantic. There are many contradictions as to how a knight should present themselves. A knight's job was to secure public order, and this was often a bloody and uncivilized practice, especially in a feudal system. Although chivalry is associated with the church, most knights operated outside of religious institutions and government. It's important to note that knights were kind of like independent militias. Mm-hmm. They weren't so much like noblemen of society. The church wanted to guide knights towards idealized chivalry, but they clashed very often with the church. Knights also clashed with the sovereign powers over how to conduct wars. Because very often they were the people that were fighting, they wanted to try to talk to the kings about how those wars would be fought, but there was a lot of tension there because the kings thought they should make a decision, even though it was the knights that were going to battle, for because, like, honor and love of country called them to do it, not because they had any sort of obligation or because it was their job. Yeah. Before 1110, how nobles conducted themselves was uncodified but referred to as the noble habitus. The habitus can be thought of as a superstructure of chivalry. The habitus concerned itself with the following ideas. One, loyalty. Two, forbearance or self-control towards other warriors and their lords. That you treat them well and aren't going to start yelling at them. Sounds about right. Because you disagree. C, hardihood or physical resilience and aptitude in warfare. D, liberality or or generosity, not just giving away what you have, but having no greed either or any desire to take bribes. Mm. Yeah, you couldn't be paid off to defunct on your morals. The Davidic ethic, this refers to the idea of being a guardian protector of the weak and helpless, that you must help those who cannot help themselves. And finally, honor by living up to the ideals of the habitus. The real code of chivalry developed between 1170 and 1220, as I mentioned. It was developed in the north of France, but its values were influenced by all of Europe and the arrival of a new character in society known as the knight. It's when knights first started appearing. Okay. idea. It's really just a title. It's not even, like, a job. It's a title. Yeah. I mean, what is a knight? Like, how do you make money as a knight? Like, Right. That was the thing, is that they were giving titles to these people known as knights, but what they were supposed to do and who they were supposed to be was really unknown, which is where this code of chivalry came in, that it's like, if you were to have this title, this is what you must subscribe to. Yeah. It, at first, was a military ideal. The values are based on a medieval medieval warrior class due to changes in early modern warfare. This included the development of the tournament ground and dueling co- culture. Ooh. Jousting persisted until the reign of Queen Elizabeth I between knights. Hunting as an expertise also became an important aspect of courtly life, which was seen as a chivalric activity. Heraldry also became linked with chivalry as knights and other nobles developed their own coat of arms. 
As I said before, Christianity also had an effect on the development of the virtues of chivalry. The peace and truce of God, which is written in the 10th century, placed limits on knights to protect and honor the weaker members of society, which is where the Davidic ethic comes from and where this idea of protection in chivalry and knighthood comes from. In the year 930, Odo, who was an abbot, called to establish a knightly class to ensure the sanctity of Christianity. And this is where the knight really came from. So the knights themselves were created from the church, even though they didn't directly serve the church. Makes sense. But it was called for by Christianity. In the 11th century, knights referred to as Knights of Christ. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So they were created by the church, but they really, like, flew away from the church in a way that they weren't supposed to. Kind of got away from the original plan. (laughs) I mentioned the Crusades earlier, and this time, between the 12th and 15th century, really elaborated religious chivalry as society imagined their countrymen taking land in the name of God. And this was a really big idea, again, really romantic, Mm -hmm. but not actually what was happening. The Crusades were really brutal and ugly, and lots of people died. Um, Then, from the 12th century, chivalry came to be understood as a moral, religious, and social code. The concept was highly influenced by Arabic literature and the Moors in Spain. They influenced medieval literature and introduced the concept into their own own works. Medieval courtly literature glorifies the valor, tactics, and ideals of both Moors and ancient Romans, who they wrote as more chivalrous to embellish Europeans' history. Of course they did! Oh my lord. The idea of chivalry later contributed to a modern interpretation of a gentleman. The medieval development of chivalry with the concept of the honor of a lady and the ensuing knightly devotion to it not only derived from thinking about Virgin Mary, but also contributed to further thought on who the Virgin Mary was and how she should be treated. And this actually changed the way that men were treating women because, ironically, at the time, the veneration of Virgin Mary was contrasted by the fact that ordinary women, especially those who were not aristocratic, were looked down upon. Mm-hmm. And though, although women at times were viewed as the source of evil, it was Mary who was a mediator to God and a source of refuge for man. So it changed the way that knights thought of as women because they were like, we are knights, we venerate the Virgin Mary, and therefore we must honor all women despite their class. You should just honor, like, respect all women, like, regardless of what one woman did. Like, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's how it started. A knight's duty to women is the most familiar aspect of chivalry, but was only one small part of it. Okay. Chivalry had waves of popularity in the Middle Ages. English writers tried to revive it in the time of the War of the Roses to unite a Mm -hmm. community of knights. I know about that. Mm -hmm. In the early Tudor rule, the idea of knights began to fade as battlefields were filled with professional infantrymen instead of knights. This is when we started to have private armies or government armies Mm -hmm. instead of just people who had pledged themselves to their country. Originally, any knight could knight a different knight. <laughs> I don't... You could just be like, my bro, you're a knight now. Yeah, like if you were knighted, you could be like, I would knight you. But then our lady, Queen Elizabeth I, made it the exclusive power of the monarch. And thus... Good for her. Knighthood and chivalry died out. <gasps> mm-hmm. However... Writers of Romanticism in the 18th and 19th centuries managed to revive a fascination with the concept because it is, and again, so many writings of it had been so romantic that to them it was this really romantic idea when really it wasn't. Interestingly enough, chivalry has been used to excuse many heinous crimes in the American South, including slavery, abortion, and lynching. Okay, it just sounds like all the things people are like, don't you want chivalry? It's like, well, what you're talking about isn't chivalry. Like, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that. The dueling culture that persisted for centuries was a product of chivalry. So we could say that chivalry killed Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> um, the behavioral col- code of military officers in the Napoleonic era and the American Civil War was modeled after chivalric code. In the early modern period, gallantry became a synonym of chivalry to refer to the proper behavior of gentlemen. Mm -hmm. Feminists criticized the idea of chivalry as it led to the trope of a damsel in distress due to its emphasis on protecting women. I'm going to end with a quote from a New York Uh Times piece by a woman named Abigail Colazzo. 
The quote is, chivalry is a behavior that masquerades as a courtesy while concealing a dramatic assertion of inequality between the sexes. There's no way around it. It's about viewing women as fragile, delicate creatures who require special treatment. But a culture that encourages men to be chivalrous and women to expect it is only perpetuating stereotypes of women as being inherently less capable than men. So let's end the outdated code of chivalry and instead focus on promoting courtesy and respect to women and men alike. I agree with that. Yeah. So now the idea is that, like, we should not aim for chivalry. We should aim for courtesy. Yeah. Just, like, respect Same idea, all. different like, execution. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with that lady. What was her name again? Abigail Colazzo. Abigail Colazzo. Right on. Yeah. So, that's everything about chivalry. That was great. I thought this was really interesting. That was really cool. Wow. We had a real, like kind of medieval day today yeah i love a good with some weed in the middle (laughs) yeah you know but they were all getting high back then they probably were but like half the time accidentally like (laughs) by accident absolutely no i thought i think i thought especially the idea that like chivalry is something that lives only in our minds not in execution is so fascinating Mm -hmm. always love a, a twist like that you know of course all right. I think that's everything. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, iphonewondering.com. I should really update that now that I have all this time. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us directly through the link in our bio, or please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at iphonewonderingpodcast at gmail.com. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? So, superheroes. Superheroes are a really big part of modern popular culture. Yeah. You know, we had the whole... we Marvel is really pumping them out. But I'm wondering about was. what the first iteration <laughs> of a superhero was mm-hmm. in modern culture. I have a feeling you're going to say... It, it was, was a mother. No, I, yeah. I, I have a feeling you're going to say Jesus in the idea of, like, someone with, like, mystical powers yeah. sent to save the world. But I mean, like, when did superheroes in terms of, like, comic books become really popular, and why? Like, what was that a response okay. to? Okay, sure. I would love to look into that for you. Superheroes, got it. Superheroes. And yes, I got that from looking at the Incredibles DVD. <laughs> That's funny. Um, Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering? What? I've been wondering about the 1918 <laughs> Spanish flu. I'm so glad you asked me. <laughs> you know, it's time to talk about another pandemic that raged across Philadelphia as coronavirus hits Philadelphia really hard this mm-hmm. week. So, let's discuss it. Yeah. Also, I, we might as well just say it. That's the flu that Edward Cullen has. <laughs> In Twilight, when Carlisle meets him and saves his life. So, mm-hmm. we're just gonna... I'm just gonna say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> say <laughs> I don't care. You broke your elbow. So, yeah. Let's talk about it. More pandemic talk next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering. <laughs>